the guitar player is like rolling in with coffee and they're like in the middle of a take. He's right. like, oh, 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 my bad. Holy shit. Let's, like, let me I was run up in move here. my amp closer to the bass. Because they were like, nah, dog. Like, wait, wait. No, we're actually, we were talking about taking your amp away. You just got a hollow body unplugged. Let's just make that work. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and old friends randomly select an album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, each week, and then we discuss, analyze, and joke about it, shit on it, whatever we're going to do. This week, we've been listening to Count Basie's The Atomic Mr. Basie. So we encourage you to play along with us. Uh, as we announce at the end of this show, we'll announce next week's album. You can go ahead and listen to it. But we're going to give you some hot takes on this Count Basie record, kind of dive deep into a few selected tracks over the course of about an hour, and ultimately vote on whether you actually really need to listen to this or kind of get to know it as part of the musical canon before you die. Does it really belong on that list, in other words? And then it's immediately on to the, the next entry and the next week. So... Excited to get into this record. With us here today, we have an amazing cast of characters. I'm going to throw it over to Tom. Please, Tom, please introduce yourself. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am Tom. Uh, super excited to talk about this album. I am a bass player, and I feel like there is a lot of bass to talk about on this album. Uh, very apt for a man who is named Count Basie to have a hot bass player in his band. Uh, super excited for it. I'm going to throw it over to Justin. Justin, how's it going? Hey guys, uh, my name is Justin Shields, and I am a old jazz head. Uh, I play trumpet, uh, and I played in a bunch of bands that played bassy back in the day. So um, excited for the, to talk bassy. Yeah, we invited Justin on the show because he knows way more about jazz certainly than I do, and I imagine he's gonna put us all to shame here and try to put Count Basie in a little bit of context. Hopefully, uh, last but not least, we have Phil. Phil, take it away. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am Phil. And yeah, also excited to talk about uh, the Atomic Mr. Basie. It was uh, definitely a first first lap on this record for me. And uh, yeah, definitely cool to just uh, dive in. Excellent. Yeah, me as well. This is Rob here. Been playing guitar for over 20 years and was just... I do like jazz and I like I like the gamut of music and it's always nice to hear new things and I had never heard this record and I admit I didn't know too much about Count Basie other than that he was jazz royalty. So excited to start talking about it with y'all. Let me start with just a little background on the record. In fact, actually, maybe just to get the vibe, I think what we should do is just play the first track on the record because I think this really set the tone. The first track is called The Kid from Red Bank that refers to Mr. Count Basie himself, he's from Red Bank, New Jersey, and let's just drop a little bit of that in right now.
little bit about the Atomic Mr. Basie. Originally released back in 1958, the full title of this record, I've been told, according to Wikipedia, is Basie, E equals MC squared, Count Basie Orchestra, and Neil Hefty Arrangements. I think they decided that wouldn't all fit on the record cover. Actually, I take it back, it is on the record cover in really small type below an atomic explosion. It's actually a really cool, it's, it's a pretty bold and cool album cover, I have to say, for the 50s. It's, it's pretty hip for 58 or whenever this came out. I agree. Sort of punk. Yeah, so I think I think one of the challenges here, right, we get, we can talk a little background on the record, but we can't really get into this record without talking about where it sits in Count Basie's career, where it sits sort of in the timeline of jazz generally, and how we should conceive of Count Basie in that jazz timeline. One thing that I wasn't expecting when I started looking into this record was that this was recorded later in Basie's life, or he was in his 50s, I think about 54, when this was released. This was more or less, we could say, far beyond the heyday of the swing band era. Basie sort of soldiered on through the 50s. He had paired and made records with a bunch of great vocalists, hip vocalists like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald, and later even Frank Sinatra, famously. But really, this was a little bit of a career revitalization move. He was trying to kind of call back to something and stay relevant, I think, in these late 1950s as he was aging and as swing and big band music was coming to a close. By this time in 1958, we're still, I think, one year before Kind of Blue and and some of those kinds of seminal records. But we're definitely in the small band era of jazz at this point. The small the quintets and sextets have been ushered in. And these 18-piece orchestras, like Count Basie's band that he's playing with, were not nearly as popular as they were, say, back in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, I feel like the, this harkened back for me to an era of um, experiencing music live and club, you know, going to like a jazz club and seeing this type of like just really swinging hot jazz and i found it very danceable i found it super cool but i i also um i i can understand why in an era of you know two and a half minute singles this type of music had gone out of fashion um you know we we talk about like what was the number one single in america when these albums came out and it was that uh danny and the junior song at the hop so like we're well into like the doo-wop era here and it's not you know like I, this is like old people music already in the in the 50s which i find to be like really interesting that it's like it's the kind of stuff that like you know, your parents were probably talking about if you were like, you know, 14 in, in 1958, your parents were like, oh, man, Count Basie back in the day. And you're like, shut up, mom, dad. This stuff's so square. Like, <laughs> right. But, oh, yeah, this is like our grandparents music. Maybe. Right. Maybe. Yeah. It might even yeah. have been a little bit before their time. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. So so a couple couple notes on where Count Basie kind of came from. Born in New Jersey back in 1904. So like I said, this came out in 1958. He was in his 50s at that point. One thing to note is that he's not like his he's contemporaries with people like Duke Ellington, you know, another great band leader of that kind of big band era. But unlike Duke Ellington, he's not really known as a writer or an arranger. So throughout his career, he's been kind of pairing with songwriters and arrangers. And in fact, really, I think the thrust of this record or probably maybe the genesis of it, we could say, as best I can tell, is that he hooked up with this guy, Neil Hefty, this kind of young, hip arranger and wanted a chance to work with him. And so Neil Hefty is credited as the writer and arranger 
on, I think, 100% of the songs. I think he maybe co-wrote one or two with Count Basie himself. But just, I think that's like an interesting thing. Uh, another thing to note that I, I found interesting is that when Count Basie first was starting out in music, he actually really much preferred playing the drums. But he got discouraged, apparently, because there was another drummer, this guy Sonny Greer, who lived in his same hometown. Uh, he's This is a guy who went on to play in Duke Ellington's band. And this guy was better at drums, so Count, so Count Basie was like, you know what, I think I'll just I'll shift over here to piano. That's an odd take. There's one guy in my town that's better than me, so I give up on my instrument. Like, how in small fairness, is your town? The, the, the guy turned out to be a stud, right? So, yeah, but you know, I could see it being demotivating. But like, if I was the second best bass player in my town, I'd be feeling pretty good. I'd be like, yeah. Well, I mean, there's that guy over there, but I'm literally the second best bass player in my town. I'd be feeling pretty. I, I think that's interesting with the fact that Basie basically made his bones in some place that wasn't his hometown. I mean, he left. Uh, he, you know, he got his start in in New York and in like the boogie woogie and the Harlem rent rent parties of the twenties. But he had to leave in uh, twenty nine thirty uh, to go to Kansas City, and that's where he really establishes his sound. So you know, you could make the argument that you know it it made him. Uh, push it outside of his creative boundaries and, you know, go somewhere where he could really create something new and original. So let me ask you as the sort of, uh, you know, uh, our, our, our resident jazz expert here, how involved was he in the creation of that Kansas City jazz sound? Um, so he goes to Kansas City and uh, he starts playing for a guy named Bernie Martin, who had a big band uh, that was out of um, Kansas City and and also with a band called the Blue Devils. And the Blue Devils were a big deal. Uh, they, they came out of Oklahoma City, and they had this very uh, – the ter- they were called the Territory Bands because back then Oklahoma was still a territory. It wasn't a state yet. Um, and these bands played a really strong early blues, um, sort of like rift, riff-based jazz. And um, that was sort of – it was the dance, big dance uh, music of the era – and it was where sort of Kansas City. So even going back further, in 1917, they killed the um, they killed the whorehouses in New Orleans. So all the all the gambling businesses, the prostitution businesses, they all migrate north into the territories, into southern Illinois, um, into places like Kansas City, and that's where uh, Pendergrass establishes Kansas City as this you know, open town to prostitution, gambling. And that's where you really have the development of the Kansas City sound. And um, he was there for all of that. He, he was there for the, and they had these things called cutting contests where they just have, you know, band competitions late at night, you know, three, four, five in the morning. Um, and, and, and he was really instrumental. So Bernie Martin, I forget what year he died, but he dies. And Count Basie takes over his band and then he starts stealing guys from the Blue Devils. He, ta- he takes a guy named Walter Page, uh, who's the bass player, who's basically the father of the walking bass line. Um, and he takes a guy named Lester Young, who, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a more important sax player for uh, in, in the swing era than, than Lester Young. And so he sort of c- takes Martin's band and the Blue Devils, who are like the preeminent uh, KC stomp band um, sounds and puts them together, and and he creates that you know that sound there at the Vanguard. You mentioned a couple couple things I wanted to touch on there, Justin. One is 
the cutting contests, which I really liked reading about and kind of went on a little Wikipedia deep dive about, where, yeah, there were sort of battles of the bands or even like a dueling pianos thing. And I heard he would duel with people like Fats Waller back in New York and stuff like that. And this article I read was drawing kind of a line between that, basically a very early jazz precursor to rap battling. Yeah, 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 absolutely. hundred percent. I I totally buy into that. It's all about, it was all, I mean, there was a lot of ego in it. Um, You know, it's a lot of manhood, you know, your, your, you know, your worth, your value is defined by you're able to out solo somebody else. You're going back and forth. Who's got the most, um, you know, who can play loudest sometimes who's got the most uh, aggressive lines it's you know it, it it's very much it was very much and if you couldn't hang you couldn't hang you had to go home so <laughs> i just wanted to touch on this concept that like uh you know they shut down all like the the houses of ill repute in uh in new orleans in 1917 like what happened to the collective country around that time that they just had such a bug up their ass that was like right before prohibition where they were just like no fun no fun like everybody's life was terrible back then. You worked some brutally crushing job and you made no money and you probably lived in like terrible conditions with no running water and stuff. And you're like, I just want to have like a drink and maybe visit a whore at the end of my day. And no, no, can't do it. <laughs> can't do it. Simpler times, Tom. Simpler times. S- simpler times. <laughs> so back, yeah, back to Basie's story. Something else that you touched on there that I wanted to mention. So yeah, he kind of cuts his teeth literally on these contests that. You know he gets he gets sharper and sharper because he has contact with all these other players and this ego driven, competitive driven, getting better and better at your instrument, right? And he what he ends up doing is he plays in that guy Bernie Moten's band. Then I read the story that they all the band basically mutinied and voted him out as band leader, and Count Basie takes over. Then that band like kind of falls apart immediately, and they just they join another band with Bernie Moten again. Like I just I'm wondering what those conversations were like. <laughs> Right. But anyway, he he eventually died, sadly, from uh, a botched tonsillectomy. That's how that guy Bernie Moten died. It was sudden. It was sudden. You know, nobody yeah. expected it. And that's why, you know, Count was there to pick up the pieces. So this is back around 1935. And Count Basie takes, like you said, he takes over that band. He starts recruiting all the best players from those other bands of the area. And basically, this is considered the founding of the Count Basie Orchestra, which continued with a variety of different players, of course, for the next 50 years. Count Basie was touring and recording with a version of the Count Basie Orchestra all the way up basically until his death in the mid 80s, which is kind of interesting and impressive. Right. And one of those people that Justin mentioned, Lester Young, Prez is his nickname. We should talk about jazz nicknames for a second, by the way, because Count has got to be one of the coolest nicknames (laughs) that I've ever heard. (laughs) Prez is also a great nickname. Duke, of course. I, I feel bad for the guy that got fats. We got Lockjaw, Eddie Lockjaw Davis. Oh, yeah. He's playing tenor sax on this record. Yeah, you better hope you get a good nickname in jazz, basically. But, but count, count is very good. So anyway, so he takes that band up to Chicago, and he one of the people he runs into that's a, sort of an epic record producer slash talent scout who runs as a behind-the-scenes guy all throughout the 20th century of music is this guy John Hammond. And you might know this guy, John Hammond, because, like I said, started out as a producer, promoter, later a talent scout. But and perhaps he you could say he intersected or furthered the careers or possibly rode the the stardom of greats like Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Billie Holiday, Count Basie, of course, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Ray Vaughan. This guy was active like all through multiple decades, finding talent and 
perhaps taking advantage of them. I'm not really sure of all the details, but certainly getting their careers a step farther down the road. One could assume he probably took severe advantage of them. I mean, that's the music music industry. Yeah, I assume so. I assume so. What what does Q-Tip say? (laughs) Record industry rule 4,080. Oh, record, record company, company people, people are, are shady. shady. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the whole time, they're really known, Count Basie's orchestra is known for the rhythm section. So Justin just, just mentioned, uh, what's his name, Walter Page? Is that right? Walter Page. Walter Page, that bass line, right? You can hear that so prominently in that kid from all through this record. Walter Page not on this record, I should say. But they were really, he focused on rhythm. And now let's start kind of maybe placing him in stylistically right into the whole story of jazz which is i my understanding is that he was interested in in this big band era keeping the arrangements pretty simple the rhythm simple enough so that it could really feature soloists and and so he had a lot of great soloists kind of come up through his band and make great careers like a lester young and just Maybe we can just speak generationally to position the listeners because this kind of stuff is helpful for me. But Lester Young is sort of the generation right before a Charlie Parker, who is sort of the generation right before a John Coltrane, and so on and so forth. So if you, at Lester Young, if you look at his solos, uh, were basically the foundation for Charlie Parker's understanding of music. That most of the bebop solos are, or bebop like ideas are built on the solos of Lester Young. So you, you, you don't have Lester Young in there making his creations or, or Basie allowing uh, Lester Young to do what he does in the band. You don't have guys like Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Dexter Gordon in particular that, you know, follow on that and take his ideas of syncopation and uh, and his rhythmic ideas that he was expressing in the Basie band and sort of take that and to create the bebop sound. Yeah, I got to say, I was... Um... Uh, I was impressed by the space in the songs. I, when I was learning that, like, you know, Basie didn't write these songs, he didn't really arrange the songs, and his piano is pretty minimalist. He's not, like, ripping. I kind of at some point was like, what are you even doing, man? Like, how is your name the name of this band? But... Maybe it was just the ethos of like this sort of uh, let's just give a lot of breathing room to allow other people to rip. And that's like sort of my contribution. I'm like a vehicle for other people to rip because it, like, it did confuse me for a while. And Justin, you give me some good context on that, that I'm like, you know, you're the Count Basie Orchestra. You didn't write the songs. If I look at just what your contribution is musically, it's pretty minimal. Like, were you just the personality that glued everything together? But maybe it's the sort of driving ethos of, like, let's just be the sort of, like, um, the fluffy cloud on which this, like, angelic, uh, you know. But, like, but you're 100% right. He never wrote the motherfucking songs. The songs are composed, at, you know, as improvised. They are a riff-based band. What Count Basie does, he start. I mean, I mean, they're formulaic to 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 a certain extent, right? The the they start off. He plays his little solo. He plays a little riff. Most of the time, the riff that he plays in piano, the saxophones come in. They play that riff as a section. Maybe the trumpet solos, and then the trumpet solos off of that saxophone riff, and then maybe the saxophone gets a solo, and then the trumpets play a different riff. So he's building, he's playing the, the, the riffs that like the different sections will take 
and then they're playing off the soloist. Super simple, simple music. It's not this like grandiose Duke Ellington composed, you know, Billy Strayhorn. Um, it, it, it ain't, it ain't like that. It's, it's very simple blues riff. You know, we're going to play, we got a riff. I mean, you look at a song like one o'clock jump. I mean, that was their call sign for years. That was their number one hit. Uh, all that is is them playing some riffs and some soloists playing behind it. I mean, it, it's real simple. But are these guys works. even like working off of charts at this point, or are they just all just sort not, of not in the thirties? Yeah, not in them stomp contests. You know, no. not in the cutting contests. No, no. So even more than that, Basie for a long time was a huge fan of what he called head arrangements, meaning they did not write down the arrangements. They partly because they wanted to keep it simple and loose, and he insisted on people kind of just rolling having it in their head how they were going to play to the point where I heard, I don't know for sure, you can hear some of this on some of the tracks on Atomic Mr. Basie, but a lot of times Count Basie would start the song with just piano. That would both tell the band what key they were playing in and the tempo he wanted the song at, like in that moment. So not yet, not very blues based, very economical playing. I'm glad you said that too, Tom, because I heard a great quote from one of, one of the folks that played in the Count Basie Orchestra, I can't quite remember, saying that Basie's economical playing, he left out more than a lot of people play. I, I, I really like, and I've grown to like, that style of super economical playing. I think another example of that would be like a Thelonious Monk or Ahmad Jamal has Ahmad Jamal, kind of that style. 100%. Right? And that, that kind of leaving notes out versus that virtuosity intensity, which I probably liked a little more when I was younger, honestly. Now I've, I've come to appreciate that much more. So I think he's an excellent piano player. I really enjoyed the piano playing on there. But I, I agree, it wasn't exactly forward. The bass felt more forward or, or the, sac, you know, the horn solos, basically. Or let's talk about the most sort of useless person on this entire album, Freddie Green on guitar. I could not pick out a single note of guitar on the entire album. <laughs> he's, he's got the easiest job in jazz, yeah. You know, you guitar guys, you get all the shine now, but you wasn't nobody back in the day. <laughs> no. Y'all got relevate, relegated to the backseat. <laughs> Just plunking along, nobody did. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, Freddie yeah. Green could have not played a single note on a song. I would not have, I would not have been able to tell the difference. I, it was not in there at all. And I guess maybe that's part of the recording technique as well. Um, they're not sure. like close mic and everything. Yeah. Um, but, but no doubt you're correct. Yeah, can't really. There are maybe some moments where it gets real mellow, right? Where like you can maybe imagine like, oh, is that sustaining sound potentially a guitar? Yeah. But that's pretty much that's pretty much where we're at. Yeah. Or he's just playing along with the walking bass line, which is basically what you know how it started. Was. Yeah, just sort of like comping chords, like sort of just filling in maybe something that a soloist. Or, I mean, almost more rhythm than yeah, totally, any, totally than anything harmonic game. too. Yeah, totally. You know, I also was, um, I, I was just to talk about uh, how, Justin, you were talking about sort of how they kind of created these songs. I don't know if you guys, to tie it to something more modern, um, I recently watched that, um, the Snarky Puppy, uh, We Like It Here, um, like commentary track, where they basically like talk about like sort of how they made that album. And I found it to be very fascinating that like the music that you hear sounds so well rehearsed and well produced and these guys are like we showed up on a friday 
with like basically nothing written and we recorded this on a Monday and like that we sort of just had a couple of ideas but we didn't write anything down like none of this is like you know I'm reading a chart playing slavishly to the notes that you have laid out it's just sort of we kind of felt our way through and then we were like all right let's just start rolling some tape on it and like I in watching that and hearing that, I was like, man, I really wish I got better at music when I was younger <laughs> so I could have done something like that. That seems so cool. I, I almost, I've come to think that that itself, no doubt those guys are monsters, right? But that's also a style of playing that I think you can separately get good at, I would imagine, right? That kind of improvisational tightness, let's say. You got to really focus on just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I there are people who can make it not sound improvisational. I think that uh, if you were to listen to the recording history of all of the improvisational bands I've been in, uh, we sounded very improvisational. <laughs> so, so we're. <laughs> I think we've been talking around it for a while and talking about Count Basie's career and why he's a part of jazz royalty. You know, let's just throw it to the group. Is one of the things that I think is instantly puzzling is why this record on this particular list. Right, this is super late in Count Basie's career. In fact, I heard a lot of people refer to it as his last great record. It seemed like it was reasonably well reviewed on places like All Music and things like that. Like people like it, and I think I understand why they like it. But it's not, as Justin even mentioned, they're not some of the songs that Basie is most well known for. They're not. He's not playing with the players he's most well known to have played with. So, and I should also mention too, just a little tidbit about the record. It did go on to win Best Jazz Performance at the very first Grammys in nineteen. First black man to win a Grammy, right? Yeah. Well, it was the first Grammy, so yeah. you know. <laughs> still, it still, put, it still counts. It still counts. It still counts. <laughs> so, but that I mean, that question couldn't help but arise, you know. And so, hey, thoughts from the group on that? I have some ideas, but thoughts. Does it does it belong in that sense? And like, why why this one? There are no other Count Basie records on the thousand and one list. Is this the right one? I know we're gonna vote on it later, but any thoughts on why this one in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think that this, in listening to it, like this reminded me a lot of a certain type of movie that like my grandmother likes, right? Like a certain type of movie with like Bing Crosby, right? That sort of era of like like the sort of Bollywood of America, right? Um, and this is like, this is sort of like part of that sound that's sort of just like bombastic, exciting, um, but also like sort of sensual sound. So I, I would just imagine that this sort of just like in a way that a record can from time to time, like it, it, I could see how this maybe felt like the beginning of something when in fact it was actually the end of something. Right. Like in the way that like Blood, Sex, Sugar, Magic or Metallica's Black Album felt like the coming out of those bands to the mainstream. Whereas in reality, it was sort of like the end of their career is like a cool part of the underground. How about that? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that could be part of it. And, and we should say, too, I think you can hear it even on Kid from Red Bank and a few other tracks. I felt that it was more forward leaning than I would have thought. It definitely in my limited understanding of these decades of recorded music, admittedly, I felt like it had a, a foot in the 40s, so to speak, of that big band, grandma, swing era, Benny Goodman era, and a foot maybe in the 70s of that kind of hopping, heavy bass, 70s cop TV show theme song kind of vibe. 
so in, in that way, it felt a little more forward looking than even though maybe it was conceived as a little bit of a retrospective. I'm not sure if Count Basie, I can get a lot of information on how he sort of felt going into this, because it seems like he was just a workman, a journeyman throughout his entire career, just turning out records continuously. Got like 60 some records over the course yeah. of his career. It's kind of you obscene. Said, you said cop theme song and the whole thing, just like the whole Naked Gun series just clicked in my head. Uh, totally. I have to look at the, this yeah. through that perspective now. I, um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of think that the reason that the, an album like this made the list is because it was oddly well-timed in an era of that sort of like atomic panic. Uh, you know, the air raid drills and, you know, it's the atomic age. Like the, the I guess it was only, what, 13 years before the uh the the a-bomb had been dropped and i think that there was still this like concept that like we're entering a new world and i think that it was again like it speaks to your point rob about like it's almost like a modern take on the old sound almost like the old sound but like put with this veneer of like um you know this sort of like modern you know the it what was in the modern zeitgeist of like this kind of sense of doom and mortality that was going on with the atomic age um i actually had been uh the only other basie album that i was familiar with was this album called primetime i think it was released in like 1977 1978 something like that that album is awesome. It's got like some super kind of funky stuff going on. Like it's a really, I really enjoy that album. And I just, one of those things I just picked up for $2 sometime when I saw it in a bargain bin. I was like, how Basie for $2, I'll buy that. And uh, I was actually blown away by how sort of like modern that sounded. Maybe it's just because it's what I had come to beforehand, but I liked that album more than I like this album. I think that if I was going to pick one to go on there, I would pick that to go on there. But it's because it's almost like, a jazz, like a big band jazz take on funk, which I really appreciated. So I don't want to go in on this album like Paul Moody and just say, I hate it. I hated all of it. I hated everything about it. But, you know, it probably has the amount of improv, improvised material on this record is probably maybe a minute, a couple minutes. I mean, you're, you're looking at the amount of like, so improvised solos, um, Everything's, you know, comparative with, you know, Basie's 30s, 40s output. I mean, there's very little soloing. There's very little individual, you know, work on it. Uh, The the arrangements are really tight. Look, I don't know who this guy is that wrote this this thing, and I didn't take the time to 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 read about him or what his book was about. But but I think what he tried. This album was very popular. It was very popular. Made a lot of money. Um, and I can, I can, you know, understand maybe if you don't know anything about Basie and you're looking to put a Basie album, you're like, okay, well, this guy's a, a major figure in, a, in American music. Like I need to find a Basie album. I'm going to pick this one. I can totally understand why you do that because, you know, I think the issue with the, the whole, the, the idea is that, you know, when Basie was his heyday, heyday, the, the format of the album wasn't even, you know, there. Like the idea of having a cohesive 12 track, you know, he was making 78s. Like this guy was cutting, you know, wax, you know, <laughs> the with an you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, 
the idea that he would make a, you know, fully, you know, like, like that we would think about it in the way that we think about albums now, I think it's, it's, he thought about it in a very different way. And maybe this is one of the few albums that he made that was sort of more cohesive. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's a way. This is when that era of album making started to turn around. He kept making albums, obviously. Yeah. I mean, and I, I'll just say, yeah, we've, criticized Robert Dimery's list-making ability many a time. I imagine it was something like what you just described, Justin, that he doesn't know too much, and this is the most popular record. But I, I have also noticed that he somewhat arbitrarily, or maybe it's not arbitrary, sort of started his list at 1955. And I, I suspect that has something to do with what you just mentioned about the, the concept of an album maybe being birthed around that time. And combined with something about recording fidelity, which I'll just be honest, has long been a barrier to me listening to stuff from pre-1950, is that recording fidelity challenge. I know I just have to get over it, and I have gotten over it on some records, but I see why that's a little bit of a barrier. So I, I wonder if it's those things. I think what Basie ended up doing with this record, we haven't really talked about Neil Hefty yet, the arranger that he hooked up with, but he figured out later in life is a lot of sort of aging musicians do that, hey, the way to keep myself vital and interesting is to connect partner with other younger people who are hip to some kind of scene, whatever, to revitalize my energy in music, to give me some new ideas. So Neil Hefty was this up and coming writer arranger, went on to write the Batman theme, like the original 70s Batman theme, as well as one of my favorite television themes of forever, which is the odd couple theme. And I actually think you you get a little odd couple in one of these songs we're going to talk about. But anyway, so I, I think that was part of what he did. And then he cycled through a few of those. In fact, one of the guys he worked with shortly after Neil Hefty was another young and up-and-coming producer. Within two more years, he was cutting a record with Quincy Jones. Who I just, that kind of blew my mind because I'm like, how old is Quincy Jones? Like, how, is, how long has he been around this long? <laughs> He's a vampire, music? dude. He's definitely a vampire. <laughs> it is great, by the way, that you're like talking about the young and up and coming Neil Hefty. He was born in 1922. <laughs> like, <laughs> motherfucker's gonna turn 100 next year. <laughs> He's young and spry compared to Basie's yeah. 55, though. Oh, no, he's, he's dead, by the way. Sorry, Neil Hefty died a couple years ago. So, sorry about that. Yeah, we were, uh, I was actually talking to Rob about this that. Uh, Neil Hefty was actually a very mediocre trumpet player before he got into uh, arranging for these big bands. And it was the same way with Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones was a very mediocre trumpet player for uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Dizzy, in the Dizzy Gillespie big band. And Dizzy Gillespie was uh, eventually just said, stop all that and please just write some <laughs> arrangements. Please and stop. He really found his role. I read a quick anecdote about Quincy Jones this week that said that when he was 14, he approached a, like a 17-year-old Ray Charles and just said, hey, I'm Quincy Jones. I'm getting into this business. You're great. Let's work together. Like, Bro, Quincy some, Jones was running around hutzpah, dude. with Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra during the heyday of the early 60s. He, I mean, he was everywhere. I would, I, would, I would give anything to be in those parties. You talk like, about hutzpah, by the way. Like the chutzpah of you're like a mediocre trumpet player, and you're like, no, no, I'll be, I'll be in Dizzy Gillespie's band, totally, yeah, <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll hang, I'll hang, don't worry about it, I'll get it, I'll get it eventually. I did not read Quincy Jones' autobiography, but allegedly he makes some very, very, very bombastic claims. Bold assertions. 
No doubt. Yeah, bold, bold, yeah. About a lot of things, I ranging mean, from like a Kennedy assassination to. Listen, you spend your youth partying with Frank Sinatra and, you know, just like drinking scotch and punching women in the face with no repercussions. And you're just like, I can get away with anything. I can say whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. I will say, now that we're, we've, we're into Quincy Jones' world, I always thought that the second track on Thriller. Uh, what's it called? I always thought it was like a hidden big band song. It is called track listing, Baby Be Mine. Yeah. You got to check that out if you're into some late Quincy Jones arrangement. It's like big band on like eight synthesizers, right? <laughs> <That's great. laughs> right we'll, we'll put that on the Spotify playlist for you. I thought that, you know, if they really wanted to pull a Basie album, um, you know, he could have pulled the the Sinatra Basie album where Quincy Jones does the the arranging. I, I mean, I mean, I thought that was that's a great uh, at sixty two. That is a great album. I have that. Might album. as well yeah. be swing. Sinatra at the Sands, right? Is that the one? No, no, no. It's a might as well be swing. Might as well be swing. Oh, they did two albums, swing. I think, but might as well be swing was a good one. And I felt like that's got a lot of what was great about Basie. I mean, it's still sixty two Basie, so it's late. Um, but you know, I think Quincy Jones brings out the best in his band. Um, Sinatra's at a very, you know, obviously it's not uh, 50 Sinatra, but he's still on a high and, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't a fan. I saw, um, he picked out a couple Sinatra albums for the greatest albums of all time. I, in the wee hours, I was like, okay, fine. That's a f- album, but the, um, songs for swingers or whatever. I was like, that shit is garbage. You could have walked away from that one. Put the it's might as well be swing had the Basie and Sinatra covered and and you know we wouldn't be here defiling your list. You know, one thing I also <laughs> noticed is that there is there's not a Louis Armstrong album on the list of one thousand and one albums you need to hear before you die. It's like again, maybe it's uh, just he started at some arbitrary point due to his recording fidelity, uh, you know, bug or bugaboo or whatever, but like. If you're you couldn't pick one Louis Armstrong album to put on this, no, come on. I think we know. Listen, we know what happened. We've discussed it. I think offline, which is he he got it in his head that he was going to write this list. He got maybe 400 deep, and he's like, I don't really want to do this anymore. Can I <laughs> hire can some I outsource this or something? <laughs> yes. Yeah, he would have picked in. some garbage like "What a Wonderful World," where yeah. Armstrong doesn't even play his trumpet or something like that. You know. Yeah. So. I feel like we've already yelled about this record a while. Let's talk about some of the songs specifically. So we already played a little snippet of Kid from Red Bank. Let's just check back in on that song right here. This is the opening track. I thought it came out of the box strong. Okay, that was Kid from Red Bank again. So we already talked about how this comes out pretty strong as the opener. It has a 70s cop show vibe. I was reminded of Lalo Schifrin. He's one of my favorite jazz pianists, but he also did a bunch of 70s theme songs, including the Mission Impossible theme. Kind of reminded me of that. As an introduction for me personally to the record, I felt like this this song was much better than I was expecting. I was kind of bracing for, for a slow ballroom I, I, I'll admit, I didn't quite know what to expect, just lack of knowledge. 
So I was pleasantly surprised when this track came on. And I should mention, too, it is credited as writer to both Neil Hefty and Count Basie. I think it's the only one on the record that Count Basie has a hand in writing, according to the liner notes. What did you guys think? So I had a question here as to whether or not the kid from Red Bank was referring to Count Basie himself or was referring to Eddie Jones, the bass player, because he was also from Red Bank and he was like 29 at the time. And it's like, oh, I wonder if he's the kid from Red Bank because it's got really hot bass. Like I loved, this is like my favorite kind of walking bass. It was, you know, it's not showy, it's not flashy, but it is just relentless, just constantly hitting the note that you want him to be hitting. And uh, I really felt like it was what made the song cook in a way that, again, it, it brought me to that that vibe of like, you know, dancing in a club and just like some smoky jazz club with a couple of highballs and, you know, really getting down on the floor. Maybe maybe going out back and puffing some muggles or something like that, you know, just really getting into it. <laughs> some jazz cigarettes. Yeah. Justin, what did you think, man? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, honestly, I'm looking at my notes and I said the same thing. The walking bass, man, just walks the shit out of that bass. Um, and I mean, that's so Count Basie started with the boogie woogie piano and they, they kind of play the uh, oompa on the, with the left hand. And he was like the way he changed it was he stopped playing that, but he got his rhythm section to basically play the, the rhythm like that. And that was how the walking bass, you know, kind of originated. You know, he's I mean, that's how he was teaching his bass players to play. And, you know, that's from the the rent parties in Harlem in the 20s. Like that's the that's the rhythm and that's the the, the beat. And I think, um, you know, you really feel that. Also, I was reading uh, in, in Basie's biography. He actually talked about just briefly about this album. And he said uh, one of the songs that he was still playing in in the early eighties when he wrote, uh, when he spoke to Albert Murray for the biography was kid from red bank. That was something that audience would always, uh, request. It's, it's, it's got a great vibe. I mean, in general, I I don't know what my expectation was coming into this exactly, but I, I definitely felt like whatever my expectation was, it was not this, right. Which is like a very up tempo. Like you've said many times, Justin riff based, you know, jazz, uh, and it, yeah, it really like got going immediately. I thought it was a breath of fresh air. The other thing I liked about it is that it gets in and out in under three minutes. Sure. Feels much longer. So we talked about his economical playing style, but just an arrangement that is fast and hot and under three minutes is itself impressive to me. P- piano solo is super minimal too. Super yeah. minimal. Oh yeah. I, I, I have a note that it like at, at one minute and 50 seconds into the song, he just hits the same note for 10 seconds in a row. He's just like, and it works. It actually works really well. I was, I was put in the mind of, um, it's that kind of thing where like, uh, everybody thinks they can do stand up comedy. Cause like, it's just talking. Like I can talk, I can get up there and just talk. And, uh, are you guys familiar with, uh, that H John Benjamin album that oh, he put the out? Jazz piano. It's one? called, yeah, it's called, yeah, well, I yeah, should have. I'm, I'm familiar. Parentheses learn to play piano. He like just does a piano album, doesn't know how to play piano. And he's got this hot jazz band. It's just him on piano. He has no idea how to play piano at all. And like it, it seemed like that, like that exact style of playing that Basie's bringing to the table would make a guy think, oh, I could totally do that. 
Hey, like it's not that hard. He's just kind of going, you know, it's like you could do that. That's, but it's actually incredibly hard to do that. It's incredibly hard to be tasteful in that scenario. It's, and I, it's really, I really hard to stay um, on the horse. You know what I mean? It's really obvious when you fall off the horse. Yeah. It's really hard to get back on the horse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I did actually listen all the way to that H. John Benjamin, you know, known as the voice of Archer and Bob from Bob's Burgers, right, and amongst other things. But uh, I just, what it made me think of was like, what was it like halfway through that recording process where he's like, no, I must continue. I must keep this high concept going of terrible piano. I mean, have you seen like the interviews with the other players where they're just like, I don't get it. I really just don't understand what he's trying to go for. I don't get it at all. But all right, whatever. He's paying me pretty well, so I guess he's doing it. There's somebody that I don't know who it is, but you know, it's some it's some great jazz players. Like, I don't know, man. Uh, maybe it's great. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, not great. I, it's I just definitely think not it was great. so funny the way he sort of responded is like. I can be open to the fact that I can't hear it, right? Like, I can be open to that possibility. <laughs> Just that was hilarious. So, Justin, I'm interested to hear your take on the horns on this song. I thought that the horns were pretty hot. Um, it sounded like you wanted to be a little bit more improvisational, but I, I liked the, again, that sort of like, yeah, not swinging. It's hot, sounds. right? It's hot. Like, yeah. uh, Snooki Young is a trouble player on this one. This, uh, on this, in this band that's, that's, you know, kind of the lead uh, on the ensemble play. And I mean, that's my note. It's hot. Um, there's not, but I mean, like, you know, I, I just wanted some more, wanted some more imp- improvisation. I wanted to hear some more, um, you know, so a little bit more soloing. I just felt that the, the album as a whole. And I mean, I, I don't even think there was a solo on this song. I think it was just Basie's um, solo in the middle there. Um yeah, I, I just feel like I could have I could have used some more improvisation. So an- another question I have for you here, and this this maybe speaks to the entire album, but like I'm looking at the personnel list, and there's four trumpet players, three trombone players, and five reed players. Are they all playing all the time, or is there like uh, yeah, you know, it's pretty we, standard. Like one or two, it's pretty standard. Okay. And I think what's amazing about them is that they and. It's not easy to do, you know, as a, a player, a person that's been in, in bands like that, um, to have like an ensemble sound and and really listen to the people around you um, and listen to the 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 you know playing the the harmony that you as either the one the first second third trumpet fourth trumpet because I was a trumpet player um, have to play you know because you have to play behind the first trumpet uh, you, you know depending on where in the harmony you are. Um, and you have to play really together, despite whatever riff there is. So I think that's like really impressive. This, this album is like a lot of teaching material for like young high school bands and college bands. Uh, it, it teach them how to play, you know, as an ensemble. Teach them how to play with dynamics as an ensemble. Because uh, I think um, I don't know. There's one of the songs. One of the songs we picked is also like. There's a lot of dynamics. Um, I think it's Splanky, actually. A uh, lot, of, ton of dynamics uh, as the ensembles, uh, like the little, you know, the sectional playing. Uh, and I think that takes, that's a lot harder than it sounds. Well, yeah, I was impressed by the fact that, like, it didn't sound like 12 horn players. And that's actually more impressive if there are 12 people playing and they meld together so well that you can't even pick 12 different sounds apart out of there. As opposed to, like, if there were 12 people and they were all trying to, like, have a way to peek out from the pack and make their sound heard, that would just be cacophonous and, like, unlistenable. 
Yeah, let's let's transition over to Splanky, that other song you mentioned. It's the most played track on this record, according on Spotify, by by a fair margin, which I was a little surprised by. But maybe Justin, you've just given us the key: is that it's used in a lot. Of, you, you mentioned earlier that you had played it in in jazz band as as a kid. Let's play a little bit of yeah, because I was a fucking nerd. Let's let's play a little bit of Splanky right now. Yeah, so Justin, let's kick it to you. Let's tell tell us a little about this. You were okay. So Splanky um, is also one of Count Basie's nicknames, and the Splanky refers to not that. Not as good as Count, uh, by the way. way. No, it's <laughs> not. It's not. But that's derivative. Like that's kind of the the radio producer gave that to him, uh, kind of as a uh, kind of like the Duke thing. Uh-huh. So it's like he's the Duke, you're the Count. Yeah, you sure. know. So I mean, it's, that's fine. You take that. But um, Splanky was based on more of his 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 uh, piano playing and some of the piano. It doesn't pieces. sound like a compliment, by the way. You're a Splanky. You're a Splanky piano player. I would not. I would not take that as a compliment. But the rhythmic figure, I guarantee you've heard a million times. It's the um, the three the three touch da da da. Mm. Oh yeah, that's that's Splank Splank Splank. And then, oh. yeah, I was going to mention that, that he's credited with that arrangement ending. Yeah. Yeah. That's flank. That's the flank. That right there. Oh, you mean like the song yeah, ending? Yeah. The song like, ending, every, yes. yeah. That's kind it's of like you. stock. I didn't write an ending. Let's just do a da, na, na, bow. Yeah. Okay. That's, an, that's enough right there. there you got Looney Tunes. Those are pretty much your <laughs> options, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so th- uh, this song is the one that actually reminded me of the odd couple sort of melody a bit. It's got that kind of chill, a little chromatic, little snaky riff in there. I And then I noticed also that maybe he's doing that head arrangement thing with the cold open on the piano. Like he's like calling out to the band, like, here's what you got to do. But uh, but you just said, Justin, you don't think there's much improvisation on this at all. So maybe they're super well oiled. Yeah, I don't well, know. I mean, you got to you got to you got a solo by Frank Foster. That, it, that's cool. It's short. But uh, I, I, I kind of like this is where Snooky Young really makes his money. Uh, the trumpet, the trumpet ensemble line, I think, was, was is really great. Uh, it's a muted trumpet. Uh, they did that a lot in the Big Bang era, and it was great, you know, for, for what they were trying to do. Uh, a lot of people were sad when they stopped, you know, doing that kind of stuff. But were they muting? Were, were they muting it for the sound, or is it actually like does it does it serve a purpose in the arrangement? The way like no, no. just. Just the, the sound, sound. yeah. Okay. They like the sound. Yeah, yeah. They use these derby mutes. They were like derby hats, and they put over the trumpet. Yeah. And they were they had like a, a show feature as well. You can like wave them around. Oh, that I, I feel like that's the um you always get that that visual of the guy doing the kind of like mute on and off. Yep. Like uh yeah. Yep. That's what they that's that's how yes. they use them. 
I, Rob, did you did you get any information as to like the actual mechanics of how this was recorded? Like, is this like one mic, two mics in a room? Like, I mean, like they got to all be recording live. There's no way that Correct. they're like you know I, overdubbing I tracks here. So. But like, yeah, no, there wasn't a lot of information about the making of this record specifically. But if we just look to kind of how records were made then, yeah, I think you can, I think you can bet that they were all playing live. Maybe we're at two track recording at this point i'm just i'm kind of guessing right but i don't think we're at i don't think four track was very common at this time so you don't have a dedicated drum for the mic uh, like mic for the drums you don't have like uh maybe just like one mic for like the horn section and one mic for like the room sound i know i mean i don't i can't speak to this record but i know a lot of elvis records and such where they had two track Right. They would have two mics. The band would play live with two live mics. And then Elvis would sing a take as they dumped it to the master. And he would just keep doing the takes <laughs> until yeah. they got one that they liked. Um, so I, would, I wouldn't be shocked if this was a similar setup where they basically had a stereo, like a stereo image. Not that it would matter. Not that you had stereo. You know, you get the stereo at home, but what would be confusing to me? Yeah, you could get a lot of the band and the horns and stuff out of that, but I would be like, how could you get that bass sound with a room mic? It doesn't. That doesn't feel possible to me. Yeah, that's interesting. Unless the mic is yeah, right, that sure. second mic is right up next to the bass, or mm-hmm. you're like you're situated between the bass and the piano, or something. That's well, for you're, that. de- you're the definitely doing it. that. You're definitely like Phil Spector wall of sound. Like have the singers take five steps back. Sort right, of, right, right, right. Know, that sort yeah, of yeah. mixing. Well, and oh, piano. Yeah, yeah. Loud. Well, I do yeah, wonder if there's some kind of overdub like <laughs> scenario, like solos or even I don't know. But yeah, there are some moments where I think some of this was likely overdubbed. But I think like a horn. A... The microphone was definitely not on the guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, we know yeah, that. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> The guitar player is like rolling in with coffee, and they're like in the middle of the take. He's right. like, "Oh, oh, oh, my bad! Holy shit! Let me, let me I was run up in move here." My amp closer to the bass because they're like, "Nah, dog, yeah. get over my nah. Like, wait, wait, no, we're actually we were talking about taking your amp away. You just got a hollow body unplugged. Let's just make that work. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Moving right along to another of the fast tracks, Whirly Bird. What do you guys think about Whirly Bird? Actually, let's play a little bit of Whirly Bird right now. So the one thing that uh, that that really stuck out to me was that um, it was like right at the like hold on I have a note here for exactly when it was it was right at two minutes and eighteen seconds he does the yakety sax line I know oh I noticed yeah but this is before yakety sax. Yeah, so I think he he spawned an entire hit song and maybe even like uh, 
you know, you could say two quote unquote hit songs because I know that uh, that that fish song, It's Ice, the bass line is basically yakety sax. Anyway, I remember learning that back in the day and my my uh, bass teacher at the time was like, you know, that's just yakety sax. It's like, I have no fucking idea what you're even <laughs> talking about. Like, this is pretty awesome. Um, but no, I, I like this song a lot. It was it was really hot. I like the slinkiness of the horns. They kind of, you know, and they're not giving you that, like, the hard punchy hits. They're giving you the kind of slinkies, and uh, I, I really dug it a lot. Again, super danceable. I could picture myself in a club just getting down to this. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's evocative of, um, of an experience. And we've talked before about, like, you need to be in a certain headspace to listen to certain music. And this music put me in a headspace as opposed to me needing to be in the headspace to listen to it, which I really appreciated. You know, it's like if I talk about that, like, M.I.A. album, like, I can't just listen to that when I'm, you know, like, doing menial tasks for my job. Um, But this, I definitely found myself, it it operated both as good background music and also, like, I could dive into it when I wanted to flip my brain over and they put me in a different place. Yeah, agreed. Justin, Phil, thoughts? I thought it was a cool track. Uh... I think this is like a good point for me to sort of bring up the, you know, the, the background music versus foreground music. I felt like, and maybe some of this is just sort of me being less familiar with Basie and sort of just generalizing the style of music, like this sort of big band swing jazz. This is fantastic background music, right? Like Tom, you're saying it puts you in a mood. Like, yeah, I think it, it really sets the mood, uh, or sets a mood. I think this track was one of the better examples of that. Yeah, it it, it sort of strikes a tone. Uh, At the same time, you don't have to listen to it, right? Like directly. Um, It's it's pretty fantastic music to sort of come into and out of um, as as an active listening. Yeah, I agree. Justin, you have any thoughts to add? Oh man, uh, so Eddie Lockjaw Davis, that that is the man on this song. And I love Eddie because I love like soul jazz. And, you know, he was kind of a forerunner to a lot of the stuff that you see, eventually see in the 70s uh, of, of like the, the stuff that CTI and Kudu Records did that was like the Grover Washington, like, you know, almost rhythm, rhythm and blues saxophone playing. So he's very bluesy, very down home, but also he's a throwback to the way the uh, saxophone players from Texas, like Illinois Jaquette, they used to be big back in the 30s, 40s, uh, used to play. It's it's brassy, it's aggressive, it's in your face. They're not really trying to play with a great sound uh, tone. You know, they're just like ripping the shit. And man, it, it's, it's, that's a man solo. You know, it, it ain't no like, you know, that ain't no Wayne Shorter. That's not, you know, somebody who's trying to like, play pretty or like Paul Desmond, you know, this is Eddie Davis and he's going to like, he's really going to rip shit up. And, you know, you better hope your, your, your wife, your girlfriend still has a panties on when the song's over. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the tone of the sax. Cause in addition to the yakety sax thing, which is also related to the next comment, it felt like I could see the bridge between this kind of saxophone playing and that, 50s rock and roll sax when saxophone was really at the front of those rock and roll bands of the little richard type bands oh, little richard exactly. stuff oh yeah, yeah. totally <laughs> and and i think they they probably took a lot of influence from this style of just yeah really brassy really out front uh playing before guitar took over and everything got worse right 
Fortunately, that that you know, uh, that terror uh, is over as well. <laughs> oh yeah, because the computers yeah, have taken that's, over now, and it's so yeah, much better. Yeah, the spreadsheets um, are they, they're they're the, the tights out now. Justin, I, I liked your comment though about like um, I feel like a lot of people who don't listen to jazz think of jazz as like a delicate music. And it's, uh, you know, this sort of, again, it's your grandmother's music. It's like you listen to it like it's fine china. And, like, this is this is dirty. This is not fine china music. This is like, you know, this was, the, this was cutting edge in its day. And it was, again, it was the panty drop. It's gritty. Music. You guys should be familiar. You're from Philadelphia. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I, no, and I admit, I, I even had that coming into this record. I thought it was going to be more subdued. And I was pleasantly surprised by how yeah how grimy and out and intense it was. So yeah. yeah, I just wish there was more of that on this record. I think I would have been happier if if there was a little bit more uh, Eddie Davis. Um, but you know, it is what it is. So let's move on to the last song, the one I personally considered the low point for me. Got a little bored with this one, called Midnight Blue. Let's play a little bit of that. I will say that one of the things that influenced my feelings about this song is that I heard that it was Basie's response to a Duke Ellington song called Mood Indigo, which just feels kind of lame to me overall. I, I don't know. As I say that, maybe maybe there's plenty of great, you know, example. Oh, Sweet Home Alabama, also a response song that I hate. So that so I maybe so, you know, I'm consistent, right? I, I, I sort of like that they built to a kind of a crescendo at three minutes in, but in general, it just felt a is, little boring. Is Hotel California or uh, the last song on Royal Scam, which one of those is the response song? Uh, that's a good question. Hotel California might be a response no, song. No, it's not the last song. What's the, it's not the, what? Turn up the <laughs> that's Eagles the and neighbors are listening. Is that no, the last song no, it's on not the Royal last Scam? Song, man. Oh, no. Wait a minute, Sweet Home is a response to Neil Young, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's Southern Man. Well, he also has a song called Alabama, so Alabama. take a pick. I, yeah. maybe, maybe it was a back and forth, maybe it was yeah. a ping pong. Is it called? I don't know. Well, because they say a Southern man don't need him around anyhow in, in Sweet Home Alabama. So I think it's a direct response to Southern I'm just man. saying he, he lays into the state oh. in the song Alabama also. It's a less popular <laughs> track. but I mean, Why would you have a problem with Alabama in the 60s? What were they doing that you could have any, any quarrel yeah. with? You know? But no, that actually it gets back to kind of Justin what you were talking about earlier with the, like the rap battle stuff. Like you know, it's like the response songs. Like you putting out your diss tracks. <laughs> like you know, you got you know like uh, putting out uh, who shot you and stuff like that. Look, I, you know? I, I don't necessarily. If anybody, if anything was a response to Duke Ellington, it was either the record company asking them to do because Mood Indigo was like early 30s that was like one of duke ellington's first hits so right. you're talking about a song that was made on the flight 27 years yeah. ago so like I, I could definitely see a recording industry executive be like hey play something like mood indigo you know some dumb shit like that or like you know them talking neil hefty into writing something like that because they needed an extra track for the it would for the be album. really interesting if like ice cube put out like a trash talking record on dre like now 
Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're talking about like something that happened 30 years ago. From the 80s, well, it's, right? well, it's also like, um, you know, maybe it was a response track, not in the like, uh, the like the Sweet Home Alabama to, to Neil Young response track, but maybe more like the um, Helter Skelter to The Who uh, response track of just like, maybe I can do that better. Like, that's kind of your sound. Maybe I can do well, that sound actually, better. Actually, so you you gave me something, Justin, there that I hadn't thought of, which is maybe it was a little tongue-in-cheek. The record company said, do something like this, and then they titled it like an off-brand Mood Indigo in calling it midnight blue like that feels like it has to be a joke because i could 100 percent see that that's part of what bothered me about it but if i could yeah if i if i could believe that count basie was like laughing about it he was like yeah this this is the one you asked for i call it midnight blue (laughs) you know everything that i had been able to find out about count basie and his persona makes me seem like he's the kind of guy I'd like to have a beer and a cigar with. Like, he just seems like oh, yeah. he's a pretty down <laughs> dude. And, like, yeah, it's like again, I, I bring up that album uh, Primetime that I have. And I, I pulled it out when we, um, you know, we're going to do this. And, like, literally just, like, the cover, it's just, like, him standing there. And he's got, like, a cigar in his hands. It's this big-ass smile on his face and, like, a captain's <laughs> hat on. Like, he just looks like he's loving I, life. It seemed like, from what I heard from the, the ex-bandmates talking about him on various documentaries, that, yeah, he was a really likable dude. He was just, he was very down-to-earth. He wasn't, like, a taskmaster asshole type. And so everyone just really liked him. And he, yeah, he's he's not giving guy. the James Brown $5 docs for uh, missing a note. He's not turning around and flashing you the five. So, no. <laughs> I don't think so, no. Cool. I mean, I like this. The Midnight Blue was, I think there needed to be like an example of like slow bassy, you know, because they did have some very good so- slow songs. I mean, I think the better song, and I probably should have said this earlier, was Lil Darlin, which also gives you a flavor of the slow bassy. That ended up being covered by a bunch of other small groups um, and was also the um, the closing theme for Johnny Carson's Tonight Show oh. for a time. Oh, man, he probably yes. made bank off of that. Let's uh yeah, let's play a little bit of that actually. Little Darling. I didn't realize that connection to the Tonight Show because that's the other thing a lot of this music was making me think of. It was making me think of late night television, come out behind the curtain kind of music, which I which I've always kind of liked. I mean, I, I have a I have a special place in my heart for theme music. Maybe it's yeah. maybe it's obvious. But by the way, just sure. so that, that's an interesting. This connection. is the cover of Prime oh, Time. Nice. It's, it's, yeah, it, he's yeah. just he's got a cigar in his hand. He's just he's just loving life. I mean, he's yeah. a good old boy. He, he looks like a happy no dude. He's like in his looks. 70s in this picture. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I feel like we've talked this album to death. And I think now is the time for us to vote. Does this album belong on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die list? If you're a brand new listener to this thing, should you take the time to both listen to it and maybe get to know it through repeated listens? We're going to kick it to a vote. And Tom... 
Sir, you go first. All right, I feel a little weird going first here because um, I think I'm going to vote opposite of Justin, and I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a little bit of a reason why. I actually think you do need to listen to this album. I think it's an accessible version of Count Basie, and I think that you need to hear Count Basie to have a full appreciation of American music. They always say jazz is like the American music. And the you know, hip hop became the American music after that, and then like very much like jazz, like Europe picked up on hip hop as well, and like really, you know, embraced it a lot. Do I think that this is the best Count Basie album? I mean, probably not. I don't know enough to say not, but I have one other Count Basie album, and I like that. that I like that album more, so I'm just gonna guess there's other ones that are better. But this one was accessible. And so I could see the, especially with the opening track, um, you know, the kid from Red Bank, it being something that could hook you in. And if it makes you listen to more Count Basie in your life, good on you. I think that uh, it's uh, it gets a yes vote for me, maybe a qualified asterisk on that. But uh, yeah, it's a yes vote for me. Justin, what'd you think? April in Paris was right there. 1956. It's got shiny stockings on it. It's I just liked it a lot. You know, if I had to tell somebody to listen to Basie, I'd obviously tell them to listen to, uh, you know, the 30s stuff. Uh, but, you know, I or maybe like the live Newport 1957. Uh, but, um, you know, you're, you've got a great point, Tom. And if I want to get somebody who's I want it to be more accessible, uh, I think that's that's fine. Um, I'm OK with that. But um, to really appreciate the greatness of the giant that is Basie, I think you got to get Lester Young. you got to hear Joe Jones on the drums. you got to hear Walter Page on the bass. And this doesn't have it for me. Um, and very little improvised music makes it almost not feel like a jazz album. So, no, I don't care that Downbeat voted Count Basie the best jazz band that year. I don't, I don't care... I don't care that this album sold well. I don't care that this album does does all those things for for a certain group of people. Uh, I, it doesn't seem like this is the one. Um, so I'm going to vote no. Ooh, house divided. I love it. Yeah, I knew I, knew so, I was going to come in with the less informed yes than the well informed no, and I really <laughs> pissed that I had to go first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, after after such a puts me in a tough spot, you know. I'm going to go yes, simply out of what I'll call uh, inertia. I think the record is fine. I think it's a fine record. I don't know Count Basie's catalog, right? So to that end, I mean, if you want to take, if, if you, <laughs> if you, if you want to take Justin's advice, by, by all means, you should do it. I just found this to be a nice and listenable album. I think, Tom, I think I agree with you to some degree with sort of making sure you sort of check this box in, in knowing this sort of piece of American musical history. I suppose that leaves me. Well, I don't want us to have our very first tie ever, so I'm going to go ahead and vote yes. Oh! And listen, I is think... Is this your first? Is this the first time you guys have all voted? At, it's been a yes? No, I think it would have been a tie. No, no, we've, we've voted a few on oh, yeah. for some yeah. different okay. reasons. Okay. But listen, I do think... I, I, I feel the same way as Tom, which is that it's a gateway. If it's a gateway album, it, it can't be bad. I also think a lot of why it's on this list and part of why it's accessible is this cover. We don't often really go too deep into the cover, but this is a great cover. It feels like, like we said, it's edgy for its time, but more than that, it 
one thing I noticed about a lot of jazz album titles and covers is that they're very indistinguishable from each other, at least from this era, right? Like literally like Miles Davis just released like 12 records in the row, which is different variations on his name with another word next to it. It gets confusing, right? This feels like a statement about what they're trying to do. Yeah, a statement about like what a record is. And for that reason, it feels like the start of a new era, maybe in jazz. I was almost swayed, I have to admit, by Justin's comments about it lacking improvisation. But I still got to go, yes. I think it's worth listening to. I think Kid from Red Bank, my favorite track, is absolutely a must hear. So it's a yes for me. There you go, Basie. You're on. You're on, baby. Congratulations. You made, you made the, the cut. Validation you made the validation you finally cut. been looking for is here. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can rest easy now. <laughs> All right. I think what remains here is Tom to tell us what we're going to be listening to next week. All right. Yes, I have the Albinator 5000. It is primed, prepped up, ready to go. We're going to spin that wheel. We're going to find out what we're going to do next week. And drum roll, please. We will be listening to oh, TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. All right. Oh. Yeah, I. Does that have waterfalls on it? I don't know if that has waterfalls. Are, are you gonna um, wrap the wrap in waterfalls, Phil? <laughs> yeah. Well, well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I see the rainbow. Let's come and go, sir. See, I actually, I, I had some time with uh, Ooh on the TLC tip. Oh the, uh, yeah, the previous yeah. Release, yeah. I had a, I remember I had a copied tape cassette version of it where I Xeroxed the cover. It was like a black and white version of the cover. I thought it was classy. Cool. Yeah, very classy. This does have oh, but, um, this yeah, has I'm creep curious. and waterfalls on it. Okay, yeah, if yeah, I was your girlfriend, written by Prince. Hell yeah! All right, I'm oh, all nice. about this yeah. now. Yeah, something wicked this way comes. Okay, yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm Red light special is that on this one? Uh, I think it would. Yes, be. yes, this it is. Be the, yeah, this is the one. Written by Babyface and also produced sexy. by Babyface. Very sexy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe even crazy well, and well, cool we as look, well. <laughs> well, we can look forward to that. We can look forward to that. That'll be quite a distinct listen from what we just were listening to. Yes. Most definitely. Great. Well, I think we're gonna go ahead and close it out here. If you think we got it totally wrong, if you think we're complete jazz morons, other than Justin, of course, please let us know. And if you liked us, please, please let us know. If you want to laud more praise upon us, we can always take more of that in our in our bundles. Uh, send us an email at one <laughs> at one thousand and one bindles album complaints. <laughs> yeah, send it bindle bindle bundle. That that was uh, that was uh, '40s jazz slang for a bindle. Oh, okay, of course, yes. <laughs> please email us. Please email us and make your please make your uh, insults as literal. You know, Justin, as before we hop off, do you have any knowledge about jazz slang and where any of that comes from? Any because there is some exceptional slang. I mean, it, sex. <laughs> I, right. I mean, I also feel like um, very much like uh, 90s hip-hop slang. It was like, what's going to confuse the white squares that they're not going to be able to figure out what we're saying? Well, anytime, anytime white people start using the slang, then it's, it's time to change it yeah, up. Yeah, you got to move on. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, yeah, makes sense. 
Okay. Well, on that note, we're going to close another week of 1001 Album Complaints. Shoot us an email if you like us. Listen along with us next week to TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. Join in on the podcast with us next week. And for 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Rob. I am Tom. I'm Justin. And I'm Phil. Boosh. Boosh.